Song of Solomon chapter 2, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And we're going to be looking at this entire chapter this evening. Uh, we're going to begin our reading in verse 1 and read down through verse number 7. Now, uh, this is the farm girl expressing her commitment uh, of, uh, of her love, uh, rather her commitment in love uh, to her fiancé. Uh, the shepherd boy to Solomon. And so the entire chapter, this young lady is talking about her love to Solomon and telling Solomon that she is already engaged and she has a young man who she has a deep relationship with. And this is a description of that relationship. We'll be looking at the entire chapter tonight, but let's look at the first seven verses uh, for the sake of our scripture reading here. Uh, she tells Solomon, she says, I am the rose of Sharon, and the lily of the valleys. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand doth embrace me. I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hens of the field, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love till he please. And so the title of the Bible study tonight is this, How a Christian Ought to Court. Now, that word court is not used uh, in today's terminology much, but you may better understand the word date, how a Christian ought to date. And uh, there are folks here tonight that are completely through with the dating scene. I get that. I understand that. Uh, but I think it's still good for even you to hear this because you may have influence on others who are in the dating scene. And you can get a good understanding of what the Bible has to say. There are others of you in here that are married, and you think, well, I don't need this either because I've already got my catch. I'm married, and I would say you need to keep on courting even after you're married. You need to keep on dating after you're married. That's very important. And so if you're married in here, this will definitely apply to you, but it will apply the most to those in the room that are not married. Those of you that are not married, and those of you watching online that are not married, or those that will be watching this later, uh, this is how a Christian ought to do it. It is very different than the way the world does it, but it is God's way, and God's way is the best way. So let's jump in tonight with that thought in mind. Let's pray. Lord, help us tonight to understand uh, what this young lady was saying to Solomon about her dating relationship. And Lord, help us to draw many truths away from this that we can put into practice in our own lives, or Lord, where it's applicable, help others put into practice in their lives. Lord, help us to model a biblical uh, behavior. Help us to do uh, Christianity, Lord, not our version of it, but, Lord, the way you intended it. Help us to be faithful to the Word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, just to catch you up to speed, last week we looked at three points. We began by looking at the forward king, the forward king. And, again, the narrative we're going with here is that Solomon has kidnapped this young farm girl out of her vineyard where she was working and carried her into his castle, had his men carry her into his castle, 
And uh, we, we, we begin Act 1, Scene 1 of this opera with uh, the harem, which is the 140 wives Solomon was already married to. This harem is um, uh, telling, telling this young lady how wonderful their, uh, their uh, fiancé is, or rather their husband is Solomon. And they're talking about his features, his physical features. It's a very sensual and sexual description of him. And the young lady fires back and says, I'm already engaged to a shepherd boy. And uh, he's outside of this place, and I'm very, very, very much in love with him. And they tell her, chapter 1, verse 8, Okay, you little beauty queen, uh, and, I'm, and I'm bringing it more into the American style or our cultural style, but okay, you little beauty queen, if you already have someone, then we don't have to compete with you, then you just get lost. And then in verse 9, which is where we picked up last week, verse 9, Solomon comes in and he tries to woo this girl, uh, sweep her up off her feet and convince her to be his next wife. And she's talking to him and uh, talking to her, he's talking to her rather, and telling um, her how wonderful and how beautiful she is. And so point number one of this Bible study was the forward king, the forward king. And then we moved right into point number two, the fierce farm girl. And she tells him, I'm already taken, I'm not for sale. She says, one day my husband will lie between my chest all night. This body is for him. It's not for you, and you need to back off. And that's what I read out of that. And then we come to number three, where we looked at last week, the fleshly king. And he says to her, you have beautiful eyes. You have beautiful eyes. Three times he tells her. And then he says, our bed is green. He goes right to the bedroom, right to bedroom talk, wanting to talk to her about climbing in between the sheets with him. And um, that was totally out of bounds and inappropriate, but that was where... Solomon was in his life. That's where he was in his life. Um, that was his mindset. He was trying to get as many wives as he could for many reasons. One, it was a sign of wealth. But two, he was addicted to women. And I don't mean one woman. I'm addicted to one woman. She's sitting right down here. I love her with all my heart. But he was addicted to women, plural. He uh, couldn't get enough of them. And by the time he was done with his woman addiction, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, someone who wants to tell me that Solomon is a picture of Christ, I really have a hard time with that because the Bible in no way endorses polygamy. In no way does it endorse polygamy. And God would tolerate it and put up with it, but God was never for it. And a man who has 300 concubines, and I've just been blunt in this Bible study. I've talked straight. And we don't have a young audience in here. If there's a young audience listening at home, uh, parents beware. This is PG-13 type talk, and so you've been warned. Uh, but with that uh, said, uh, that disclaimer put out there, um, uh, talking about Solomon, do you all know what a concubine is? A concubine is a woman you keep around just for sex. That's all she's there for. You don't want to have any other relationship with her other than to sleep with her. And if Solomon is the epitome of Christ, um, Solomon's a very poor representation of Christ. 700 women who he was married to and 300 women he had just to sleep with, he'd go in and take his pick whenever he wanted, 
This is a filthy, filthy man. And on top of that, he had another house of virgins who, who were being prepared to be the next, the next one, the next one. And so Solomon was a very, very fleshly man. And this young girl, this young farm girl, is going to begin to explain to Solomon the very special relationship she has with her fiancé. It is a monogamous relationship. They are singled, they are, they, are, uh, they, they are sold out one to the other. And from this, we get from this young lady's description of her relationship, we get a, a view into their dating life, their courting life, how they courted each other. And I believe the way this young lady describes her relationship with her fiancé, I believe this is dating or courting that pleases the Lord. Now, uh, obviously, there will be things that will apply that we'll say tonight that are for only those that are dating, but I do believe, or dating and not married, but I do believe there are applications all along the way that can be made to married couples. Okay, so we've looked at the forward king, the fierce farm girl, the fleshly king. Let's jump in at number four here and notice the faithful couple. The faithful couple. Look back with me. Uh, we'll let, let it, rather, let's just jump right into the subpoints here because we've got a lot to cover and we've got about 40 minutes to do it here, okay? Here, notice letter A, their purity. Their purity, okay? Look at Song of Solomon, chapter 2, and look with me at verse number 1 and look at how she describes their relationship here. She says to Solomon, she says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Look here, as the lily among thorns, all right, she is the lily, she is the lily. Who are the thorns? Well, she's going to tell us. Look here. She said, so is my love among the daughters. Now, any time in the book of Song of Solomon, you see that word daughters or daughters of Jerusalem, that is a reference to Solomon's 140 current wives and concubines. He, she says, I am the lily among Solomon, among your thorns. These want, and if you want to, uh, again, if you want to view into the window of how these 140 women think, go back to the very beginning of the book and read how they describe Solomon in a very sexual manner. These women were perverse in their view of what love was and how it worked. And she says, I am a lily among the thorns. I am the rose of Sharon. But it's not just about her purity. Let's keep reading. Verse 3, she says, As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sun. Stop, let's stop the reading there. She's saying that not only do I stand out in my purity, do not, not only do I stand out in my loveliness and my, uh, the way I come at it, my fiancé is like an apple tree amongst a bunch of wood. He stands out also. Uh, you have a bunch of wooden trees, but my fiancé is like an apple tree. He, there, he puts out fruit. He's different than everyone else. There is a purity about the two of us. You know, the Bible has a whole lot to say about sexual purity, and it flies 
in the face. It flies in the face of the culture today. And don't just take my word for it, all right? Look up there at the screen or look there at your bulletin, and what you'll see is that I have about just a small amount of references in the New Testament that tell us, and I only put a, a handful of them, that tell us, um, or rather I only put a small percentage of them, tell us the importance of avoiding fornication. So let's jump into Romans chapter 1 and verse number 29. And listen, I'm going to make a slam dunk case from the Bible that premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexual sex is a sin. And that's not from me. That's from God's word. And, and, and listen, let's let the Bible do the preaching for the next few minutes here. Turn over to Romans chapter 1 and verse number 29. The Bible says there, being filled with all unrighteousnesses, fornication, there's that word, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers. And we'll stop the reading there. But verse 30 goes on to give even more uh, uh, of the crowd that the fornicator is to be labeled with. Now, listen, we live in a world where um, harsh-sounding terms that describe sin are labeled hate speech. Hate speech. The word fornicator is a hard-hitting word that you don't hear people in the world use because it is a condemning, judgmental-sounding word. This is God's word to describe any sort of sexual activity outside of the bonds of of marriage. I heard one person say once, write the words sex sins on a piece of paper and draw a large circle around it and anything that fits inside that circle is fornication. And I have to say, that's a pretty good description of the word. And so fornication here in Romans 29, Romans chapter 1 verse 29 is a crime against God. All right, let's keep going. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 1. 1 Corinthians 5, 1. And for sake of time, I'm going to begin reading as soon as I get to the verse. You can catch up with me when you arrive. It says, It is reportedly, reported commonly that there is fornication among you. Now, this is Paul writing to the church of Corinth. Uh, fornication among you and such fornication as it is not uh, so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. He said, listen, fornication has become accepted in your church culture. It's just accepted as normal and fine. Uh, people are sleeping with each other outside of the bonds of marriage. And uh, it's commonly, commonly reported among you. And it's gotten so far past the pale. Here we have a man sleeping with his father's wife. So that's either his mother or his uh, stepmom. That is Awful. And so here we see that this is being condemned. Later on in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, uh, Paul tells them, throw this guy out of your church and you all knock it off. Look down at verse number 9. Look down at verse number 9 in 1 Corinthians 5. It says, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. And so again, fornications being condemned. Uh, turn with me over to chapter 6 and verse number 18. For me, it's on the same page. might be one page over to the right there. Chapter 6, verse 18. Look what the Bible says. It says, flee fornication. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. He that committeth fornication sinneth against 
his own body. And so again, uh, how should a Christian court, uh, listen, if you're not married, you have no right sleeping together. I don't care what the world at large says. I don't care what the culture says. I don't care what your friends do. I don't care what your brother or sister does. I don't care what your mom and dad say is okay. I don't care if your mom and dad provide the contraceptives to keep you from getting pregnant and look the other way when you go in your bedroom. The Bible says it's wrong, so that makes it wrong. It doesn't matter who else endorses it. The Bible says it's wrong, and we're to flee fornication. Okay, turn with me over to chapter 7 and verse number 2. Look here at what the Bible has to say about how we avoid sexual sins, the sin of fornication. It says, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, how do we avoid fornication? Let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own Husband, the Bible says that if you are just so sexually driven that you have to sleep with the other gender, then you better make sure that you're married first. Now, this won't be for you at home, but look up one verse in chapter 7. Look up just look up at the beginning of the, of the chapter there. It says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote, unto me it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And that touch there is reference to a sexual touch. There's nothing wrong with a man shaking a woman's hand or even a man giving a woman a hug in a non-sexual way. Uh, But a man and woman should not touch each other sexually outside of the bonds of marriage. And listen, touching each other sexually is not just the sex act. It's all of the sexual touching that culminates in the sex act. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5. In verse number 19. Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 19. The Bible says here, Now the works of the flesh. All right. We know that this is the opposite of the works of the Spirit. The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery. That's extramarital sex. Fornication. That's premarital sex. And that would be pornography as well. Uncleanness, lasciviousness. And then verse 20 goes on, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, stripes, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. And so we see fornication listed amongst some pretty hard-hitting, heavy sins that Christians are to avoid. All right, uh, let's keep going here. Turn over with me, uh, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 3. And again, I'm not giving you every verse in in the New Testament that deals with the issue. I'm just grabbing a few of them, Uh, maybe half of them. There's quite a few more. This is a sin that Paul and the other apostles hit over and over and over again because they knew that it would be a struggle for so many. Look at verse 3. But fornication and uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Can I tell you what that means? That means when the saints gather at church, we shouldn't be looking around the room saying, well, they're, they're, they're living together, and they're living together, and that one over there is cheating on his wife, and that one over there is cheating on her husband, and this one over here is not doing right, and this one over here is not doing right. It says, not only should it not be your culture, but if you are true Christians and you gather together as saints, this should not be once, not once, 
named among you. I know pastors who look the other way when they have couples living together in their church or sleeping around with each other in their church, pastors who aren't willing to deal with that. And Paul was very, very clear to the church of Corinth and again here to the church of Ephesus that it's not to be part of your church culture. It's not to be named not even once among you. All right, turn over to First Thessalonians chapter 4 and look with me at verse number 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 3. Just a couple more here. All right. For this is the will of God. This is a great verse. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, even your spiritual growth, even your being made into the image and likeness of Christ, even your sanctification that ye should abstain from fornication. There's that word abstain, abstain. Notice that word abstain. Now, what is God's plan when it comes to sex for an unmarried couple that is courting or dating? Let me tell you what it is in a word. It is the word abstinence. Abstinence. You say, but how am I supposed to know if we're compatible? How am I supposed to know if it'll work? Hey, when you buy a car, don't you take it out for a test drive? My uncle told me that when I was dating Angela. I went down to see my family in Louisiana while we were dating, and my uncle gave me a ride to the airport from just outside of Baton Rouge in New Orleans, New Orleans airport. He said, I just don't get you Christians. He said, you, you all don't, don't, uh, don't sleep with each other, don't have sex with each other before marriage. He said, how do you know you're not going to get into marriage and find out that your wife's just terrible in bed? She's totally incompatible. And I looked at him and I said... Well, I'm sorry. If I'm compatible with her emotionally and spiritually, all those other things will take care of themselves. And what I wanted to look at him and say was, you've been divorced three times. So I don't think you have any place to be giving me advice, sir. But because he was my uncle, I was respectful. The Bible says the Christians are to abstain from fornication. Titus chapter 2 Verse 14, and I don't have the statistics with me in this message. I shared them some time ago in a different message. But if you live together before you get married, the chances of divorce skyrocket. It's, it's not even close. If you live together before you go to the courthouse and get married or see the preacher and get married, the chances of you getting a divorce are astronomically higher. And those aren't just my numbers. People who are secular non-Christians have to admit that those numbers are just the truth. So that's the whole idea that, you know, we need to try it out first. Boy, it just doesn't work. Look at Titus chapter 2 and verse number 14. Um, uh, this is a, a pastoral epistle. Paul says to Pastor Titus, he says, "...who giveth himself uh, for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify us uh, unto himself a peculiar people." zealous of good works. Now, this is the first verse we've looked at in a while that didn't have that buzzword fornication, but I threw this one in here. Uh, the last two verses I threw in here for a reason. The world is going to look at you when as a couple you're dating or courting and you're not sleeping together and you have parameters around yourself to keep that from happening and that temptation from getting you, uh, the world's going to look at you and they're going to think you're strange. But you know what? We're to be a strange or peculiar people. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 9. For Hebrews, James, 1 Peter the uh, two books after the book of Hebrews. So just a few books to the right from where we were. First Peter chapter 2, and look at verse number 9. The Bible says, But ye are a chosen 
generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation. There's that phrase again, a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, into his marvelous light. And so I would say to you that this couple here, they were pure with each other. As we go throughout the book of Song of Solomon, what you're going to see over and over and over again is that when this couple interact with each other, when they speak with each other, there is a purity in their voices. There are a couple of places where there are some sexual overtures toward each other because they're engaged. They're on the brink of getting married, but even then, they're very, 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 very careful with this area. Let me just say that if you're a dating couple here tonight or you're listening to this later uh, and you're a dating couple, let me just uh, give you some advice here, okay? This is some pastoral advice, all right? Uh, I can't tell you that these things are in the Bible, but this is just good common sense that will help you to stay within the parameters of the Bible. Um, I want you to picture that you have a car that is on a downward incline, and um, the second that that car begins down that uh, incline, it's only going to pick up speed because this particular car has no brakes. Okay, now, courting or dating is the vehicle that takes us to marriage. If you are a teenager, and to those of you in here that have teenagers, uh, please consider what I'm about to say. Again, this is logical, and I believe it fits in line with biblical principle, all right? Uh, If you are a teenager, why would you get in the car when there is no way for you at any time soon to arrive at the destination? All you do is set yourself up to get hurt. You're either going to end up sleeping with that other person and hurting yourself, and by the way, it does hurt you, Or you're going to end up breaking off the relationship and getting your heart hurt prematurely. I think it's great for 14, 15, 16-year-old teenage boys to spend their time around other teenage boys. I've seen some teenage boys and teenage girls, they're so into that one person and they're exclusive and they take ownership one of the other, calling the other one a boyfriend and a girlfriend. And you know what? I don't want any mangy 15-year-old boy calling April his girlfriend. I have ownership of my daughter at that age. That boy who's still learning how to put on deodorant and shower and pop his pimples, he has no ownership of my daughter. And I don't want my son who's learning how to deodorize and shower and pop his zits, I don't want him claiming ownership over some girl that belongs to her father. This idea of calling someone your boyfriend or your girlfriend, it's just not wise. You say, well, pastor, they like each other. And I'm not going to stop my children from liking the other gender. In fact, I'm going to encourage my children to like the other gender. Hey, in 2021, if your kids like the other gender, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I'm not going to get in the way of what's natural, but I'm going to have three rules for them. No titles, no alone time, and here's the third one, no touching. No touching. I'm going to tell myself here, I don't know if I've ever told anyone this. I don't even know if I've told Angela this. When I was 16, I um, uh, sat in a cubicle at um, school, and I did my schoolwork, and there was a girl next to me, and um, she sat in the cubicle next to me, And um, I think she must have really liked me because she would cross her legs and with her foot she would touch the back of my leg. 
and you say, what's the big deal? Can I tell you the hormones that rage through my body just from her touching my leg? You say, that's weird. No, it's not. And she kept doing it on purpose. She kept doing it on purpose. And we never dated each other. We never even expressed that we liked each other. But there was a little something, something going on there. There is a flame that's kindled when a boy and girl who are interested in each other touch. I don't care if they're 55 or 15. That's just how it works. And once that flame is kindled, it's just going to continue to grow. I'm not saying that it's a sin for an unmarried couple to hold hands. But where does holding hands lead to? It leads to hugging, which leads to kissing, which leads to making out, which leads to, well, we know where that leads. And at some point along the way, you are losing and giving up your purity. And this couple here, they were committed to purity. She said, the harem are a bunch of perverse, filthy, sexually minded girls. I am the lily of the valley. I am the rose of Sharon. And my fiancé is the apple tree amongst all the other wood in the forest. Their purity. Boy, Christians, we'd be wise to commit to purity. Let her be, notice, his protection. His protection. Turn back to Song of Solomon and look at chapter 2 and verse number 3. It says there, As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down, look here, I sat down under his shadow with great delight. I sat down under his shadow with great delight. I see here uh, that she felt protected by the shadow that his strength provided and that the role of a man is to protect the woman. The role of the man is to protect the woman. We live in an era of feminists, feminists who say, I'm just as good and as strong as the man. And I would look at you and say, don't be a competitor, be a completer. Don't compete, rather complete, complete. Listen, having a different role, ma'am, does not make you any less. It just means you have a different role. And the role of the man is to protect his woman. I see men who take estrogen pills to try to make themselves soft and effeminate and women who get testosterone shots so they can be bigger and stronger. And I had two rules uh, when I got married. My first rule was don't marry what you can't carry. Can I get an amen right there? If I can't carry her, I wasn't going to marry her. Amen? And the second rule, I shouldn't have said that out loud, but I did. The second rule I had was if she can beat me up, I am not going to marry her. I've seen some girls out there that could definitely take me behind the woodshed and whip me. And boy, I wasn't having anything to do with that. Because then she can protect me and she doesn't need to keep me around for anything. Listen, God made the man to be, uh, on average, anatomically bigger and faster and stronger than the woman. If you don't believe me, then just look at professional sports. Look at the WNBA versus the NBA. Look at women's soccer versus men's soccer. Some time ago, the women's national soccer team, USA soccer team, took on the men's soccer team 13 and under, and the men's soccer team 
13 and under, beat the women's national team, the one with Megan Rapino and all those girls, beat them like 8 to 0. The level of competition isn't close. Why? Because anatomically, God made the man bigger and stronger because he is to protect that woman. And I would just say to you girls in the room today, find a man who is strong but graceful. Don't try to compete with his strength. Find a man who can protect you. And by the way, this ought to be the mentality in a dating relationship. Um, notice underneath his protection, notice spiritual protection. Turn over to Ephesians chapter number 5. Ephesians chapter number 5. Listen, uh, what I'm saying tonight, there's a whole lot of people in the culture that think that this is just wild and crazy and, and so 1950s. And uh, Pastor Lejeune, go back to the 1950s because this just isn't how the world works anymore. And I would say that truth is never out of style. Truth is never out of style, and uh, you may not like it. And I would just say to you people that find my speech to be offensive and wrong, look at the divorce rate in this country. We are clearly not doing it right. I would say look at all the STDs, look at all the brokenness, look at all the pain, look at the suicide rate, look at the hurt in this world today. Clearly the culture has something wrong. Maybe those who do it the Bible way... Maybe they have it figured out. I'm just going to say this. I have found in my years of being a counselor and a pastor and in my 14 years now of being married, I have found that when my wife and I are both committed to the biblical model, we are filled with joy and happiness and peace. When one of the two of us gets off of track from the biblical model, we are filled with strife and fighting and envying and problems. And I get off track more than Angela does. The Bible way just flat works. And you can call it old-fashioned. You can call it sexist. You can label it anything you want. But it works. Because God created marriage, and He created the boundaries around it. Look at verse number 25 of Ephesians 5. The Bible says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it, that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of of the water uh, by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Spiritual protection. Uh, sir, you are to protect her spiritually. I see a lot of relationships where the woman is far more spiritual than the man is. And sir, you've got to pick your game up a little bit. Now, I feel bad for women that get into a marriage and their husband has no uh, spiritual interest or loses his spiritual interest. And listen, ma'am, I'm not saying that if your husband's lost all spiritual interest, that means you're to, you know, uh, uh, trail him or be behind him. No, you be the most godly woman that you can be. The challenge isn't to the woman to be less godly. I have no problem with strong women. What I have a problem with is weak, sissy men. We have a lot of weak, sissy men in this world. They're content to come home and plop down on the couch with their beverage of choice and their TV channel of choice and they're content to tune out the wife and tune out the kids and let the wife run the home and let the wife decide what the kids watch on TV and what they wear and what they eat and where they go and who their friends are and who they hang out with. And the husband is just content to go to work, 
pay the bills, come home and be a lazy bum, and he spiritually does not walk with God. He doesn't read his Bible. He doesn't pray. He's not leading the way. He never sits his family down and prays with him. He never reads the Bible with his family. He hardly takes them to church unless his wife guilt trips him in it. The wife is strong, but he's a weak Flimsy, backbone man, and it's time, high time in America, we got some men who would court right and date right and stand up and say, I'm going to protect you spiritually and I'm going to lead you spiritually. We need men who will be the spiritual protectors of their home. Ladies, I would just add to this that um, when your husband says, hey, I don't think we should be watching that on TV, that you not buck him. You say, well, well, why? It doesn't matter why. He sees something in that that isn't godly and that's leading you astray. He is your protector. Do you know what the word submit means? Man, I'm going to roll tonight. I might as well just keep going. You know what the word submit means? It means to put your hands down and quit fighting. You women fight your husbands and fight your husbands and fight your husbands and fight your husbands. And you know what? They're afraid to lead you because you won't follow. What if your husband were to look at you and say, that's not modest, can you please change? Would you fight him on that? Would you make him sleep on the couch? Would you sit him to a hotel for a night? Would you give him the silent treatment? Would you be unkind his direction? This girl says, I find shadow, I find shade, I find rest under the apple tree of my fiancé. Boy, he brings protection to me. And we have a problem in America where men have become effeminized and women have become masculated. Men are emasculated and women are masculated. And Satan is trying to push men this way and trying to push women this way and he's mixing up the roles. And men, we have to protect spiritually, but not only spiritually, but physically. Look at verse 28, Ephesians 5. The Bible says, So ought men to love their wives as their own body, He that loveth his wife loveth himself. You are to love that woman as though she is your own body. You treat her like she is um, uh, you. You you take care of her physically. There is that physical protection. And so we see here uh, this Christian couple, this young lady is describing her engagement to uh, to her fiancé, and she says, we are pure. I am the lily amongst... Uh, uh, the, the, in the valley. I'm the lily among the thorns. I'm the rose of Sharon. She says, not only uh, look at our purity, she says, my fiancé, he protects me. Let her see, notice, his provision. Not only does he protect me, he provides for me. Go back to Song of Solomon in uh, chapter 2 and look at verse number 3. Verse number 3 and verse number 4 there. It says there, as the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight. Look here. And his fruit, his fruit was sweet to my taste. He's providing for her sustenance, food. Uh, verse 4, he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. His provision uh, was love. He courts me. He dates me. He takes me to a fancy dinner and he, he shows me great affection. He loves me. He provides for me. Listen, I'm all for a woman having a job in the workplace. I know some 
Baptist pastors get the reputation for saying that women's place is in the kitchen and, you know, they shouldn't ever leave the kitchen. And I heard one man say, well, I don't know why a woman needs anything other than a pair of slippers because her place is in the kitchen. And I think that's foolishness. I think that's wrong. Uh, I don't think uh, men should make a joke like that, even even joke about that. There's a place for the woman in the workplace, go read Proverbs chapter 31. Uh, the, 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 the virtuous woman goes to work. She gathers uh, money for her household. She knows what it is to uh, invest in real estate and be a real estate, uh, or rather be a realtor. And She knows how to make things and sell them for her home. There is a place for the woman to work, but please understand that it is God's will and God's plan for the man to be the provider, not for the woman to be the provider. Now, the man is to be the financial provider for the home. The woman can supplement. The woman can bring in. And in some cases, the woman might bring, bring more in uh, in those situations. But it is, it is to be primarily the man's role. Turn over to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 5. Now, when you're dating, when you're courting, girls, if you make more money than he does and you work and he doesn't, I've seen some dating relationships where the girl is responsible, she goes to work, she has a job, uh, she's maybe even going to classes, and um, her, her boyfriend, he, his, his job is that he plays video games all day. And he claims, well, I'm a streamer. Oh, yeah, I, I sit at home and I stream video games and I make 50 bucks a week doing that. That's my job, man. I go to work, I get up and play PlayStation all day. If that's, who, if that's who you're dating, you need to drop him like a bad habit right now. Drop him like a hot potato. You don't even be anywhere near him. Get a man who goes to work! He knows how to work! He knows what it's like to sweat and bleed and be tired and have his body ache. He knows how to swing a hammer or at least do something that makes money because he knows what it's like to be scheduled and get up and go to work. And if you're listening in tonight and you're a lazy bum, get off your tush and get to work and be worthy of dating to begin with. Genesis 2, look at verse 15. The Bible says, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Some people say, we get to heaven, man, we're never going to have to work another day in our life. We're just going to sit on a cloud with our wings and play a harp. <laughs> Did you know that before sin entered into paradise there in the Garden of Eden, that God put Adam in the Garden of Eden, and you know what he told him to do? He said, hey, Adam, get to work. You know what we're going to be doing in heaven? We're going to be working. Now, it won't, it won't bother us. You know, when Adam went to work, there was no pain involved. He, he, he didn't get tired. He enjoyed it. He didn't get tired. Uh, he didn't get pricked by the ground. In fact, sin made work hard. Look at Genesis chapter 3. And we see here that when God divvies out the punishment to Adam and Eve for sinning, notice that Adam's punishment involves being a provider, and Eve's punishment involves being a nourisher. Look at verse 16. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Oh, pastor, say it's not so. Did God really just say that the woman is to rule over the woman? Yep, that's what he said. 
Oh, God is such a sexist. No, 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 no. God made the rules. It's His rules. And He said that the husband is to rule over the wife. The woman's punishment would be in childbearing. Look at verse 17, and we see the punishment that God lays out for the man. It says, In anatomy, He said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hath eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow uh, thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and also in thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return to the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Look down to verse number 20. And Adam, uh, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. By the way, the name Adam in the Hebrew is the word ish, which means man. And Eve is the, is the word isha, that means from man, from man. God made the man for himself. He made the woman for the man. And the woman is to come under and follow her husband. He's, she's to follow her husband. And so notice here that the man's punishment was in his labor, in his provision. Turn over with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse number 8. 1 Timothy 5, 8, and here in 1 Timothy 5, we have Paul telling Timothy how to handle uh, women who are young but widowed. Young but widowed, and he says, let them get to a place where they're physically in great need, and then they'll go get married and their needs will be taken care of. 1 Timothy 5, 8 says, but if any provide not for her own. Is that what it says? What's the pronoun there? For his own. If any provide not for his own. Notice where the burden of responsibility for provision lies. It lies with the him for his own. If any provide not for his own. It goes on to say uh, there, I lost my spot. Here it is. But if anybody provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever or an infidel. The Bible says if you, sir, do not put food on the table for your family, if you, sir, are not working hard to provide, if you, sir, are not kicking yourself in the rear to make it happen, you are worse than someone who isn't even saved. You're worse than someone who's a pagan or an unbeliever, an infidel. And so God puts the burden of provision on the man. Girls, if you're dating a boy and you're outworking him, you're out money making him, you're out, uh, 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 you're, you're out doing him as far as an effort goes at work, then you really ought to look twice at who you're dating. It ought to be that the man works hard to provide for the wife. Now, again, I want to make sure I put this out here. There are certain situations in marriages where the husband and wife both work equally hard, and the wife's career lends for her to make more money than the husband. There is nothing wrong with that whatsoever. If that's your situation, God bless you. Amen. But, sir, I would just add this to it. Don't you dare let your wife work circles around you. She may make more money than you. You make sure she's not working any harder than you. His provision. Notice letter E, letter D rather, their passion. Their passion. I need to speed things along here. Turn to Isaiah, or rather, turn back to Song of Solomon, chapter 2 and verse number 5. Song of Solomon, chapter 2 and verse number 5. She says there, Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. His left hand is under my uh, head, and his right hand doth 
embrace me. Now, uh, look at that phrase back in verse 5. She says, for I am sick of love. In today's terms, we would word it this way. She's saying, I am lovesick. I am lovesick. Uh, Cupid's arrow has struck me. <laughs> I am madly in love with this young man. I sit under his apple tree. I eat of that fruit. Uh, he takes me out on a date to the banqueting house. His banner over me is love. And boy, when I get done with that date, I am just over the moon for this guy. I, excuse my uh, uh, antiquitous, old-fashioned terminology, but she says I... I'm head over heels in love with this guy. I am love sick, as though I have drunk wine. I am just sick of love. I am love sick for this man. And then verse six, she she is passionate about even physical contact between them. She said his left hand, again, he's not present. He's outside. She's imagining this happening. They're right on the brink of marriage. She says, his left hand is under my head and his right hand doth embrace me. He holds me close. There is that strength of him pulling me close to me. There is that passion. Now, Isaiah, we won't turn there, but Isaiah chapter 56, verse 3 through 5, I wanted to make sure I included this in the message tonight. God does not call everyone to get married. Some people God calls to be single. Some people God made with no sexual desires at all. We call them biblical eunuchs. And the world wants to try to tell you, if you're a biblical eunuch, that you're gay or you're a homosexual. That's a lie from the devil. God does make some people with no sexual desires at all, and that's okay. He made you to have an even deeper and closer walk with Him. And you embrace that walk. And don't you look at other people who are getting married off and think, I'm missing out. No, 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 no. If God created you with, with no sexual desire toward the other gender, then He didn't create you with a sexual desire even toward the same gender. He made you a biblical eunuch so that you would have a deeper and more intimate walk with Him. And so embrace that and understand God has something totally different for you. But for those of you here that were getting given a God-given sex drive and you've not yet married, please understand that God's plan for you very well may be marriage. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 18 and verse number 22. Proverbs 18 verse number 22. The Bible says there, I'll begin reading, it says, um, Whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favor of the Lord. All the married men in the room, amen. Amen. Listen, um, you've heard the phrase, women, you can't live with them, you can't live without them. Right? There, I'm glad I got one person to laugh. Um, you, there may be times in marriage where you just are just, their passion. You're passionately angry at your wife, right? Uh, but there is a, a passion that's there. Hey, listen, it is normal, if you're dating in here tonight or one day plan to date, it is normal to to feel romance, to be uh, madly in love with someone. That is something that God gives us. And uh, that is normal. That's to be appreciated. That is to be celebrated. Ephesians chapter 5 Verse number 31, let me quickly turn over there for you. Uh, Ephesians 5.31, the Bible says, uh, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too 
shall be one flesh. There is a chemical, uh, there, there, there are chemicals that go on in our body. Uh, there are hormones that go on in our body that cause us to have a love one for the other, and that is totally normal. That is God-given. That is not to be condemned or looked down upon. That's to be celebrated. There is that buildup of passion between a dating couple that culminates on the wedding day and then goes and grows well beyond that. We see here the couple's passion. Letter E, notice their patience. Their patience. Look with me back at verse number 7 of our passage this evening. Look at verse number 7. Song of Solomon chapter 2 and verse number 7. The Bible says, now here again, uh, let me just set the stage for you. This young lady is standing there in Solomon's palace, this farm girl. She's talking to Solomon about her fiancé, the harem. The 140 girls are present in this, uh, this, this play, this opera. And she turns in verse 7 from talking to Solomon and she's going to address the harem. Look what she says to the harem in verse 7. She says, I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hens of the field. Look here. That ye stir not up, nor awake my love till he pleases. That ye stir not up, nor awake my love till he pleases. You know what she's saying? She's saying, let's be patient. Let's be patient. In everything in its proper time. Look down at verse number 10. Look down to verse 10. Let's read through verse 13. She says, My beloved spake and said unto me. So now we're now this is the first time in the book that we're hearing what the fiancé, the shepherd boy, has to say. Look at verse 10. And by the way, before we read verse 10, if we have any critics in the room that think that Solomon is the fiancé, not the shepherd boy, notice the difference in his speech to Solomon's speech as far as purity goes. Look at verse 10, and we hear him speaking. He says, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing of the birds is come. And the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs. And the vines with the tender grapes give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Boy, that's just beautiful, isn't it? That's poetic. You know what he's saying? He's saying there was a time in our engagement and the season has changed. It's time for our engagement to be over and our marriage to begin. In verse 7, she says, don't wake up my love. Don't rush him to the harem. And by the way, you'll find this phrase repeated throughout the book. She continues to tell the harem, don't wake him up. Don't go find him. Let him be. Let him uh, come get me. Let's not rush this. And then here, she is saying, his words to her are, it's time. It's time. Our time is fulfilled. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. We don't have time to read the passage tonight. But Solomon would tell us there's a time for everything. There's a time for love. There's a time for hate. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Uh, I want to just make this point here quickly. She let him... Take the lead. She lets him take the lead. He leads her. He leads her. My kids came home from school the other day, and uh, they have a teacher in their school, a young couple, uh, Christian school, and uh, the the, uh, gentleman's name is Adam Ron. I've not met Brother Ron yet, but 
um, here's how the story was conveyed to me. Uh, they were in a store together, and uh, Mrs. Ron was taking her dear sweet time, and he looked at her and said something along the lines of, I need you to finish up what you're doing. We need to move along. We need to go. We have a lot to do. And a woman was listening to him talk to her, and this bold woman said to her, don't let him boss you around. He's not the boss of you. And he looked at her and he said, uh, Ma'am, I'm her husband. This is not your business. Basically, butt off. And the woman looked at, back at Mrs. Ron and said, Ma'am, you don't have to do what he says. And she looked at him and said, Oh, yes, I do. She said, when I agreed to marry him, I agreed to make him my head. And I do need to do what he says. And you need to leave us alone. And whoa, walked away. You know what she was doing? She was letting him take the lead. Letter F, notice his pursuit. His pursuit. He pursues her. To the Christian couples listening in tonight, he pursues her. She does not pursue him. Girls should not be asking guys out. Girls should not be asking guys to marry him. Girls should not be leading the way. You say, well, he just, if I waited for him, it'd never happen. Well, I get that there's some funny stories that go along that. And I'm not, look, if that was your story, I'm not here to embarrass you or talk bad about you. That's fine. That worked for you. Hey, that's great. Just get things in order now and let him lead. But if you're in a dating relationship, you make sure the boy pursues the girl. Look at verse 8 and 9. We're almost done here. Look at verse 8 and 9. I know the hours. Uh, we're, we're about five minutes late here. We'll be okay. Look at verse 8. The voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. Well, why is he doing this? Now remember, he can't find her. He's been looking for his fiance, and she's been kidnapped and brought in the palace, and she's telling him, hey, I bet right now my shepherd boy fiance, he's out there looking for me. He's looking through the lattice. Uh, uh, he's looking over the wall of the palace. He's trying to find me. He's pursuing me. Look down to verse number 14. O oh, my dove, and this is him speaking to her, thou art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs. Let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. He's pursuing her. I remember, we okay tonight? You guys have a couple more minutes? You guys all right? If, I'm going to do it anyway, so it doesn't matter what you say. You'll enjoy this. Unless you just get up and walk out. I can't stop you. Amen. Brother Cyrett, block the doors. No. Um, when, I, uh, when I was dating Angela, I remember asking her out for our first date and her accepting. And a second date and a third date and a fourth date. And, you know, my, my sweet wife would never let me just assume that we were a dating couple until I asked her to be my girlfriend. And so even then, if I wanted her to go on a date with me, 
I had to go ask her to a particular time and place for that date. We were a couple for a long, long time before we would sit together in chapel every day in college or sit together in church every service in church. And she would sit with her friends and I would sit with my friends. And she was making me pursue her. I remember um, uh, when I told her that I loved her. I uh, set up this big event and I had never told her I loved her before. We'd been dating probably seven, eight months. And I took her out on the St. Lawrence River and it pours out into Lake Michigan. And we had a bunch of friends and family that were, or friends rather, that were there. And I took her down to a private spot on the boat. And right when the sun's setting over Lake Michigan there by Navy Pier, I pulled out, uh, I memorized this long thing in Spanish. I didn't speak Spanish at the time. And I was going to tell her I loved her for the first time ever, and I was going to tell her in Spanish. And about halfway through, I forgot uh, how to say it in Spanish. So I reached in my back pocket, and I read the second half of it. And you know what this, this young lady did? I told her that I loved her, and she didn't tell me back right away. She just looked at me and smiled. You know what she was doing? She was making me pursue her. I got back to a 45-minute ride, hour-long ride back from Chicago to where the college dorms were. And I got back in the college dorms, and I got my phone, and, and I called her. And, and I'm trying to get her to, to say it back. I, I can't go to bed until you tell me you love me back. I know you love me. You have to tell me. And finally, she broke down on the phone and started crying, and she said, I love you too. I love you too. I remember a sometime later when uh, we were uh, close to getting engaged and I was talking to her with an assumptive tone that we were going to get married and uh, I had not formalized it. I had not asked her to marry me. And I remember I was dropping her off there to get on the bus to go back to the college. The buses transported the girls back and forth from the church to the college. It was a sunny night and I was dropping her off there where she'd get on the, the shuttle, the bus, and and I said something to her that was very assumptive that we were going to marry. And I'll never forget, she gave me a hard chastisement that I deserved. She looked at me and she said, if you're going to ask me to marry me, just ask me. But until then, don't you dare assume that the answer is yes. You know what she was saying? Pursue me. Pursue me. Pursue me. Man, I walked... I, I walked over to the edge of the curb and I had to repel off the curb because I was so short. Boy, I felt lower than a snake's belly in a wagon rut. I was, I was low. I was low. And I got my, my car and I'm sulking and I can't believe she just told me that. And you know what? I sat up real straight and tall and I said, She's right! She's right! I shouldn't be assuming. And then we got engaged and, and, and now, amen, to this day, I still am the one that pursues in the marriage. Boy, girls, find a boy that will pursue you. Boys, pursue her. Don't let her chase you. You man up and chase her. And you'll be blessed for it. And so that is our faithful couple and their courting relationship. How a Christian ought to court. Let's stand together and be dismissed with a word of prayer. I hope you enjoyed the Bible study this evening. And uh, you'll get to hear all that again in a few months on a Sunday morning. Uh, some version of that anyway. I may tone it down a little bit. 
but uh, some version of that. I hope it was a help to you. And if you're, you are here tonight and you did not court that way and you're married, you didn't date that way and you're married, I didn't mean to throw any stones at you. That's not the purpose of it. Uh, I just mean more to help those who are in the dating scene to do it the right way. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Ask God to bless us as we go. Give us a good, uh, give us a good rest of our evening.